AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Brett Johnson with you here on a Tuesday afternoon. And as usual, we are joined by Patrick Kulikan, who is the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer. Uh, Make sure you go to minnesotareformer.com for the latest in Minnesota news and politics. have a lot of stories to talk through today, including a column that Aaron Brown wrote about this uh, possible um, U.S. steel being bought out by a Japanese company and facing a lot of pushback on the Iron Range. We're going to talk about what that means and why uh, these unions on the Iron Range are pushing for another buyer of U.S. steel. We'll also be talking about the uh, DFL picking a new Senate majority leader, as well as last week's Ilhan Omar controversy. Patrick, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. So let's start off talking a little bit about this Ilhan Omar controversy from last week. Obviously, uh, uh, you've probably heard about this before listening to the stations. We won't spend a ton on ton of time on it, at least in terms of the background. But uh, just in case you missed what happened, Ilhan Omar continues to face criticism and, well, calls from Republicans to resign, including, I believe, even a... Uh, an order from Marjorie Taylor Greene to try to remove her from the House. Tom Emmer has also said she resign, she should resign. And why? Well, because Republicans are basing their argument on a flawed translation of a speech she made at the Minneapolis Hyatt a little over a week ago. The translation under dispute from that speech characterized Omar's comments this way about an agreement signed last month between landlocked Ethiopia to give access to the sea by way of Somalia's of uh, Somalia's coastline. The U.S. government, this is what they allege, Ilhan Omar said, the U.S. government will only do what Somalians and the U.S. tell them to do. They will do what we want and nothing else. They must follow our orders. Now, you guys over at the Minnesota Reformer had a couple of Somali interpreters go and translate what Ilhan Omar actually said, and as it turns out, that wasn't what she said whatsoever, correct? Right, um... Then there's a there's a lot of red flags here that yeah. that uh, people uh, should have uh, detected if they were really interested in the truth of what she was saying. Well, I suspect uh, they weren't. I think uh, they decided that uh, she was speaking in Somali and that was going to be enough to uh, to get some of their base riled up. And uh, and then they had this uh, translation, mistranslation uh, that was posted. I should note, by a political foe, it was somebody from Somaliland, which is this breakaway republic that's not recognized by the United States or the rest of the international community. Um, so you ought to, you should have been skeptical right away. I mean, if if my political opponent posts uh, something about me, I mean, aren't we automatically skeptical? Um, and then there was a couple things in the in the uh, alleged. Uh, English translation, the, the incorrect English translation that also uh, should have raised red flags. One was that she, she said we are Somalians first. That's not how Somali um, people refer to themselves. They, they use the term Somali, not Somalian. And secondly, uh, she uh, purported to have said that we are Somalians first and Muslims second. Um, it's just a Devout Muslims would not say that in a room full of other de- devout Muslims, um, and I, I think that would be true of a lot of religious people on uh, other religions. You, know, you would never say you were a Christian second. I don't think. Um, I went to the University of Notre Dame, and our and, and one of the unofficial mottos was "God, country, Notre Dame." <laughs> it was. Mm. It was not. 
um, country, God, Notre Dame. No, nobody would ever say that. And uh, so, so this should have really raised uh, red flags. But instead of doing the basic thing here, which, uh, which is what we decided we should do, go out and try to figure, you know, hire people who, who can translate this uh, for us, somebody like Tom Emmer uh, just says, well, it's, she's expressing the Somalia first uh, ideology or worldview, and, um, you know, by implication, is not loyal to the United States, and therefore she should decide, uh, resign in disgrace. Um, I, I, I'd love to know if Tom Emmer now is seeing what she actually said, if he still thinks that she should just resign in disgrace, um, or if maybe he should apologize for um, making that allegation about her. Um, but it was also an interesting uh, episode, I thought, for uh, for the national media, because uh, they, um, all these other outlets, were just reporting this as a kind of typical sort of controversy. Well, people say that she is disloyal or not not expressing loyalties to the United States. She's expressing loyalties to Somalia, and then they would they report that well, she says no, that's not what she said, and nobody actually went out and hired uh, an interpreter to figure out what she actually said, um, and so it was kind of like a a typical uh, episode of national media doing this kind of he said, she said, and who, who could know what the truth is? Well, you could know what the truth is. Um, granted, it's, it wasn't, we had an advantage because obviously there's a lot of the certified Somali interpreters, or there's a few anyway, around here. Um, and so uh, we were, I'm glad we were able to do that. But uh, I would hope it would be something of a cautionary tale for everyone. Um, anytime you see something on the Internet, especially in a foreign language. Yeah. You should be very uh, wary of what people are saying uh, that uh, it says, because they may be, they have their own agenda. In this case, the person who posted that mistranslation clearly had her own agenda. Absolutely, and especially when we're talking about a foreign language, which, let's be honest, most people are not familiar with and don't know how to speak. You would think your first thing to do would be, well, let's figure out what the translation really said, especially when it's being disputed by the congressperson herself. That would be Ilhan Omar. But as you said, it's very easy just to do the he said, she said thing. Or even as I was talking to my producer, uh, Patrick, before the interview, he was even saying it's almost like Republicans just come up with the call for Ilhan Omar to resign of the week. And it's easy to just chalk that up as saying, well, it's just another Republican call for her to resign when really uh, it's quite a bit more serious when you're literally just misinterpreting what she said and running with wildfire and making calls to resign. I mean, I guess that shouldn't be too surprising. That was going to be my question. Are you surprised at all by the reaction? But I guess if you have a lot of national news outlets that really aren't doing their homework on that, it shouldn't be surprising that it's still this false information is being still bandied about outside, out there. Yeah, I mean, I, and I think that we this is just the, the media age that we live in uh, that's it's been uh, catalyzed by social media, and then you have uh, someone like Donald Trump who just threw, uh, I'm mixing some metaphors, and we just kind of threw accelerant on the fire, and it just doesn't, it doesn't seem to matter anymore, and I think, I don't know, there was a time when politicians, I mean, I think we think of politicians as cheating the truth or exaggerating, um, but I think that, you know, there was a time when 
in in recent memory when I think a politician caught saying something that was like factually untrue, provably untrue, there'd be a little bit of there'd be not just a little bit, but significant embarrassment around that, and and it would be reported, and the person might uh, they say they misspoke, and we there'd be a whole cycle of that, and then uh, there seems to be this this new rule book where you can kind of say whatever you want, and I'm not going to unfortunately it's this is not a it's not a both sides thing, but it's also not just Republicans doing this. Um, mm-hmm. But there's something that's changed in our political culture where it does seem to be uh, much more okay um, to say things that are untrue. And then when when it's proven that what you said is untrue, you don't have to do anything about it. Uh, I think that's another dispiriting aspect to this. Um, the Florida governor, uh, DeSantis, said that uh, he actually said that uh, she should be deported over this, which you can't deport somebody in America. <laughs> this is ridiculous yeah. to begin with, but it was all predicated on this bad translation, and it just everybody just moves on. And yeah, so it's it is a little depressing, frankly. What kind of even makes it more depressing, too, is I went down the rabbit hole of uh, looking at some of the social media reaction when you guys originally put out your accurate translation of what she said, and it was just a uh, Interesting reading some of the replies saying, well, this person worked for the government and we shouldn't trust them. How do we know these interpreters are accurate? It just kind of a, can make your head spin where even you get those accurate translations and people are still going to bang their head against the wall and say, it's false. That's not what she said. She's still anti-American and so on and so on. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, you know, who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, you can read more about that story over at minnesotareformer.com, minnesotareformer.com, and you can see what Ilhan Omar really said during that speech at the Hyatt uh, just a little over a week ago. Do you want to move on to some other stories and columns that you guys are uh, covering over at the Minnesota Reformer? And let's talk about this column that Aaron Brown wrote. We've had him on the show before. He's uh, based out of the Iron Range and knows a lot about the situation in terms of labor and also politics on the range. And he wrote a column talking about U.S. steel possibly being bought by another company because back in December, Japanese steel giant Nippon Steel agreed to buy U.S. steel for about $15 billion, more than the company was expected to fetch here in the U.S., Uh, U.S. Steel employs more than 1,800 Minnesotans that are mostly based in the Iron Range, in the Masabi area, I should say, Masabi Range. And the uh, Nippon Steel deal outraged United Steel Workers Union, which preferred that U.S. Steel would be bought by Cleveland Cliffs instead. So this is an interesting column uh, that Aaron wrote because he does talk about some of the unintended consequences of uh, what could happen if they do end up reversing course and being bought by Cleveland Cliffs. But... Let's start off with this. Why do the workers prefer working with Cleveland Stiffs rather than this other Japanese company? Because it seems like almost universal opposition from across the political spectrum on this, too, of having a preference for uh, this company being bought by uh, Cleveland Cliffs rather than Nippon Steel in Japan. Yeah, the steel workers, um, their uh, contract, uh, they're, they're looking for their contract to be honored. And and so that's their issue with the uh, with this m- potential merger, and they see uh, Cleveland Cliffs as a much more labor friendly uh, company. But as Aaron points out, I mean, this e- either way, whether it's Nippon Steel buying U.S. Steel or, or Cleveland Cliffs buying U.S. Steel, you're you're getting consolidation. And what do we usually see with consolidation? 
generally, um, or at least very often, there's going to be uh, some layoffs. I mean, they're, they're going to look for the cost savings. Uh, that, that, that's sort of the whole point of many of these mergers. And, uh, and so that's, so what his sort of point that he gets to is that, uh, the steel workers maybe ought to be thinking a little more long term about the health of the industry overall, uh, and, and whether or not they really want to, um, get into bed, as it were, with the, with the Cleveland Cliffs, um, even though, in the end, if Cliffs ends up winning this battle and, and becomes this huge, uh, bigger, I should say, uh, steel company, uh, that could lead to layoffs that would be uh, certainly felt on the iron range. Yeah, as they'll say, they'll call it something fancy like, oh, well, we're just doing vertical integration at our company, when really what they're doing is just laying a bunch of people off. But it is interesting, that he, as he writes about, how this is a very close relationship between the union and Cleveland Cliffs, and something you don't often see in terms of relationships between management and labor, where he basically makes the argument that they've essentially merged, which has been kind of common on the Iron Range, as Aaron and I have talked about in the past. So that just kind of adds another aspect to this. But I'm, I'm with you that at least in this column that uh, that Aaron wrote, there probably are going to be layoffs because that almost always happens when we have these big conglomerates end up merging. And that'll probably happen within the next few. Usually that doesn't happen right away when you have those uh, types of mergers, but they are probably going to happen and there are going to be unintended consequences with this merger. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, and so I think Aaron is saying... Um, the steel workers might pause for a second as they consider um, who they want to be uh, their corporate uh, overlord here. We'll read more about Aaron's column over minnesotareformer.com, minnesotareformer.com, because that is that interesting dynamic of how uh, labor has changed on the Iron Range that Aaron works writes about. And again, uh, find that column over at The Reformer. And finally, wanted to talk to you about uh, what's happening in the DFL-controlled state Senate, because they are going to need to pick a new Senate majority leader today. That's because current majority leader Carrie Dijic announced that she would be stepping down from her leadership role. Uh, she had been battling cancer during the 2023 session, and she announced last week that, unfortunately, her cancer has returned and that she would be stepping down to focus her attention on her health. Uh, it sounds like she will be staying in the Senate, but just won't have that leadership position anymore. So I believe even as we speak and are recording this at about 2.50 in the afternoon, uh, the DFL is going through and figuring out who they might elect as their next majority leader. Any thoughts on some of the faces that we might be seeing contend for this position or which direction the DFL might go in terms of a progressive or maybe a more moderate or even a consensus candidate? Uh, what are your thoughts on this race to see who could be the DFL Senate majority leader? Yeah, so it's the intra-caucus uh, politics. Um, very hard to know exactly what's going to happen because you've got these personalities that play and and uh, you've got to gather 18 votes. So um, it, it's different than, than the kind of elections that we're used to covering. Uh, I think they they have a, a very tough job in, in picking someone to replace uh, Dietzik. Um, and certainly we wish her well as she continues to battle cancer. She, she was a really um, understated, underrated leader of the last session. Um, she's pretty press shy, uh, so it's not like she's out there in the public, but she really had a good understanding for each individual member, what they needed, 
and um, and how and and also how to say no to a member um, when it was gonna when what they wanted was gonna be detrimental to the whole caucus. If you think about all of those legislative achievements from last session, uh, you needed um, somebody who was gonna uh, put the caucus before her own. Uh, interests or ambitions, and and she did that. And so you, it's just sort of a strange position of the caucus leadership because you need somebody who's in some ways selfless um, because they really have to be thinking about the members more than themselves, but at the same time they're ambitious. So it's kind of a strange mix. Um, and uh, Carrie Dietzik, uh was really filled that role ably, and, and a pretty sh- you know she was only leader for a short time. Um, and so now they're, you know, Aaron Murphy, who was the, uh, lost the nomination for governor in, in 2018 and, uh, came to the state senate. She's, was this, the House majority leader, so she certainly has experience with legislative leadership. Uh, Nick Friends is a, uh, Mankato senator, um, I think would, I guess would be described as somewhat centrist. Um, Scott Dibble, Minneapolis is, uh, Specialty is uh, transportation issues. The friends does energy issues, um, and then Bobby Joe Champion um, from Minneapolis, uh, who's current Senate president. Um, so maybe he's a, a kind of consensus candidate. Um, last last time they had this leadership battle, I think there was a member or two who said that they if if the if the caucus went in the direction they didn't like, they would, they would leave the caucus. Um, so the problem with the one vote majority is it, it's all, it's, uh, it's very narrow and, and there's no room for error. So, uh, we'll be interested to see, uh, who they select as their leader. Luckily for them, they don't have an election this year that only the house is up. So they don't have to worry about that. But the next caucus leader is certainly going to, uh, be, be charged with, uh, recruiting candidates and, and fundraising and, and creating a uh, a strategy to keep that majority that that razor thin majority in 2026, which is going to be could be President Biden's second off uh, off year election, which generally has been bad for incumbents. So, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, it'll be very interesting to see who they select today. Yeah, absolutely, especially when you consider the fact that this is going to be the fourth time within the past few years that DFLers are going to have to pick a new Senate majority leader, as they've uh, had a couple in the past that have uh, are no longer holding the position. They've gone from Tom Bach to Susan Kent to now Carrie Dijic, and now her successor that they are selecting today. And who knows, by the time our interviews played back, we might even know who that successor will be, so we'll follow along. We have been speaking with Patrick Hulican, who is the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer. Make sure you go to minnesotareformer.com for the latest in Minnesota news and politics. Patrick, as always, thanks for the time today. Always a pleasure. Baby, it's hot All right, let's take a break and turn things back over to Matt McNeil on AM 950. Never believed in us, thinking 